0: If you entrust all the minutes and hours of your days, at God's disposal, he can transform your whole life into a receptacle for blessing and favor. Before Moses left Egypt, God caused the Egyptians to be very favorable to the people of Israel. The enemies of Israel were no longer a problem. God turned them into a blessing for Israel. The Israelites left with Egypt's gold and silver, and they left in style. I mean, let me tell you, Israel marched off wearing Egypt's designer label clothes, too. The Egyptian enemies of Israel gave the Israelites whatever they asked for, so they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth your enemies are no more challenging, your reputation no more damaged, and your prospects are no bleaker than those of Moses. From the time of his birth, Moses was doomed. But as we know, his story ended very differently than Pharaoh envisioned. God crafted an entirely new conclusion. Moses showed the world a miraculous new perspective. and God revealed new strategies. He provided the tools to change lives. Having God's perspective can even change reality. By the way, reality is not all that it's cracked up to be. Some realities are false. A simple woman, the mother of Moses, rejected one of those false realities. The reality of a Jewish pregnancy under Pharaoh's rules required infanticide. How could she intentionally destroy her newborn son? Her reality wouldn't allow such behavior. Her heart cried, no, I'm a mommy, not a murderer. She had a name. It was lost to most folks because few know the name of the mother of Moses. Now we know much about his brother Aaron and his sister Miriam. We know a bit about his father-in-law Jethro and his wife Zipporah. His father's name is Amram. He made it into some genealogical accounts because Jews tracked family descent through the father's lineage. The father of Moses is easy to locate in the biblical records. His mother's name is more obscure. Her name was Jochebed. In Hebrew, it meant God is glory. Some translations shorten it to God's glory. I like that because Jochebed, the mother of Moses, mirrored the love of God and God's love is an awesome display of his glory. Jochebed was a mommy in a much more real way than she was a slave in Egypt. That mommy rejected Pharaoh's decree. At least she refused to give up her reality to comply with Pharaoh's reality. The king of Egypt was living in a fear-based reality of his own making. Pharaoh was afraid that the sons of the Jewish mothers would someday revolt against Egypt. That was his fear. And it was his fear that formed his reality and informed his decisions. His fear drove him to issue the decree violated by the midwives and it caused him to establish the executive order drown the Jewish baby boys. I don't want them growing up to revolt and turn against Egypt. To the Jews who believed Pharaoh's reality, Moses should have simply been drowned. How many mothers killed their baby boys because they believed the reality of a king's decree? I mean Pharaoh was right. His fear was realistic. It sounds strange, but in spite of the fact that the Hebrews were God's people, it was God who let them grow stronger than their enemies. It was God's doing. He made the Egyptians plan hateful things against them. Pharaoh had reason to be angry and fearful. He was in a classic no-win situation. He tried to alter the outcome of his fear-based reality with a dictatorial demand. But that mommy who carried God's glory could not violate her God-given maternal reality. That mommy put Moses into the Nile River as commanded by Pharaoh. But to her credit, her reality prohibited her from drowning Moses. She gave Moses a chance to live. That was the best she could do. But it was enough. She gave God a chance and he took it from there. Mommy couldn't control the feeding habits of hungry crocodiles. I mean, they had probably developed a a taste for tender Jewish male infants left to die close to shore. Mommy had no power over the waves that might flip Moses into a watery grave. She had no real control over any outcomes. But she did have control over her decision. She refused to just drown her child. Mommy's reality desired life. Pharaoh's reality demanded death. What about God's reality? His is the only reality that really matters. We must pursue God's reality when his conflicts with ours. Whatever the circumstance, the reality of our adversary will bend to God's reality when God is ready. Even the state's reality must eventually give way to God's. Like the Jewish midwives, we must learn to reject the world's false realities and pursue God's, like Jochebed we must see beyond the obvious and envision the divine. When the world's reality is godless, we must pursue God's reality in our life. That's when he brings us a heightened sense that all things are possible with God. That's when his plans and his purposes and his power begins to upend the false realities that threaten to rob us of our dreams, cause our failure, and crush our hope. That's when God's miracles become our reality. The mother of Moses reached her end. I'm sure when she floated little Moses down the river, her her heart was broken. I mean, it was the worst day of her life. That was when. Her reality finally met up with God's. A little basket of dreams launched from the bulrushes in Egypt's Nile River, sent her helpless little baby into the holy flow of God's salvation plan of the ages. Pharaoh didn't understand he'd become a bit player in the plan of God. He was a vessel fitted for destruction. And if we are wise, we will not judge such choices. They only remain in God's purview. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Pharaoh was a challenge to God's people and an opportunity for Moses to pull the curtain back and reveal the grand glory of God. Every obstacle to the plan of God is subject to the immediate and radical change that God's will reveals without anyone's approval and over everyone's objections. Until we get to the end of our reality, we're not prepared to enter God's reality. Parents, if we're not ready, To place our highest aspirations for our children's lives in a shaky, tar-patched basket and let it float down a hostile river into God's hands. Don't go near the water. But if we're ready for what's next in life as servants of God, buckle up, partner. The ride gets rocky but amazing. The psalmist said He holds our lives in His hands and He holds our feet to the path. I love that. He holds our feet to the path. I'm not going off the rails no matter how sharp the turn or how steep the incline or decline, God is going to hold our feet to the path. We can trust God with our lives and our destiny. Don't leave home without Him. Take no leg of this journey alone if you are pursuing God he will hold your life in his hands he will hold your feet on his path you won't go off the rails in the case of Moses not only did mommy's reality save the life of her baby but God's plan enriched her life and brought redemption And that brings us to Randy's rule of theology number one. Take notes. God uses everything at his disposal to accomplish his goals. And rule number one is inseparable from rule number two. Randy's rule of theology number two, everything and everyone are at God's disposal. Let me tell you, Pharaoh's worst nightmare became his reality. He attempted to change his fear-based reality through dictatorial decree. He issued death warrants for all Jewish baby boys. He was determined to manage Jewish population control. He intended to continue using the free slave labor that underpinned Egypt's economy. And what happened? Pharaoh's daughter adopted baby Moses. I mean, just when things seemed totally off the rails, God's salvation plan of the ages came to create circumstances that revealed his plan was right on track. Now, though she was not Jewish, the daughter of Pharaoh should be recognized as one of the greatest of all Passover heroes. Sadly, she's usually overlooked, and that's another tradition I think we should change. What kind of world would we have if she had not opened her heart to baby Moses? The Bible would have been much shorter and those great Moses memes on social media would have made no sense. Exodus does not mention her name. And that's odd since Moses wrote the book. There's only one single verse far from Exodus in First Chronicles that says, And these were the sons of Bithia, the daughter of Pharaoh. Of course, we can't be positive which Pharaoh in history was Bithia's daddy. Neither can we be certain which of Pharaoh's daughters raised Moses. Her name is uncertain. Many rabbis do believe that Bithia is the name of the Egyptian mother of Moses. But even if we don't know her name with certainty, we do know her character. We also know that God has a finely tuned sense of humor and a well crafted sense of fair play. I won't say that God's a practical joker because I don't want to get pranked by him if he's offended by such a characterization. I'll let you decide. Pharaoh's daughter paid the mother of Moses a handsome wage to nurse Moses. So I ask you this question. Where does the daughter of the king go for her spending money? I think the answer is back to daddy. So here's another question. Therefore, who paid for the Jewish kid to be nursed and protected? The answer is the king (laughs) who had signed his death warrant. I mean, now that's funny. Jochebed would have done it for free. but. God put it into the heart of the king's daughter to give her daddy's money to the mother of Moses to nurse her own baby. And then the baby the daddy condemned was adopted into his royal family. Seriously. (laughs) Moses moved into the palace. He probably got his own room. A pony and a puppy. I mean God sat back and chuckled. And then God posted a great picture of the empty basket of reeds with a two-word Texas caption that went viral. Bam! Well, you see what's next. And that brings me to Randy's rule of theology number three. Be sure and write this one down. God is good and he does all things well. We just need to stop doubting God. We got to stop thinking that God is mad at us or he's out to get us. We must quit assuming that things are not going to work out. We need to silence the failure loop playing over and over and over again in our heads. Well, that didn't work. This ain't going to work. You know, things just never work out for me. You all know the chorus to that song, don't you? Please don't sing along. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. This is a Passover prequel. Does Walmart even sell unleavened worms? It's time to learn the art of changing the channel in our heads because God loves us. He has a plan for our lives. He's good at what He does and He has a reality that is far superior to the world's reality, to the government's reality, and to our own reality. Especially if that pathetic failure loop is still playing. When we get to the end of our reality, God will transmit the details about moving into His reality. There's no promise of a pony and a puppy, but I promise that His reality is the one you want. You may not find the frequency for God's broadcasts on the channel where you watch football or your favorite televangelist. It is only heard by those who begin going directly to God. Turn to God and yearn for His Word if you intend to learn His will. Pray, read, trust, discover God's character, fall back in love with God. He's in love with you. And we should not forget that over 400 years had slipped by while the Hebrews lived in Egypt. The call of Moses did not come quickly. Moses was not prepared to properly engage his call. He took an early stab at being the redeemer of the Hebrews, but his purpose for living was not yet fully understood. He saw an injustice and attempted to repair it by by killing a man. In fact, Moses was guilty of premeditated murder. Moses made sure there were no witnesses. Then he whacked his victim and hid the body. Moses was hasty. He was violent. His character was yet undeveloped. He was a man of wealth and influence with no one to teach him about God. Think about that. At that time, Moses was more like Pharaoh than he was like God's redeemer. And that shouldn't be surprising. Pharaoh helped raise Moses. He grew up in the court of Pharaoh. Moses certainly revered his adopted grandpa until the manslaughter incident sent him on the run for his life. In the wilderness, the entire persona of Moses changed. He had a new career and a new family, probably had a new identity. Moses found himself in a different world with a different future than he'd expected. I wonder, I mean, how much of his prior life was exposed to his new family? I wonder if Moses had reformatted his hard drive and erased all his dreams of an influential future. Had he wiped off every meaningful desire for significance and forgotten his former momentary feeling of concern for the Hebrews? Did sheep, sand, and survival fill his thoughts? That's my assumption. He probably lost all sense of call. What remained was A duty to fulfill the daily tasks associated with desert life to preserve his family. Moses took a long walk in a bleak place wondering what had happened to his life. Wandering and wondering changed everything for Moses. He wandered back into his destiny. Moses had an encounter with God. It was shocking for important reasons that extend beyond the physics of fire. Uh, After all, who was God? Did Moses know God before his burning bush encounter? Did he believe God had any remaining connection to the Hebrew slaves that he had left in Egypt? Though some may disagree, it seems to me that neither Moses nor the nation of Israel were close to God. Until the Exodus, there really was no nation of Israel. So God must have seemed very distant to Hebrew slaves. God was not well known to the slaves in Egypt. Moses understood the confusion that would occur if he visited the Jews of Egypt with a message from his long forgotten God that suddenly popped out of a burning bush. The question Moses asked God was not rhetorical. It was genuine and practical. If I go to the people of Israel and tell them that their father's God has sent me, they will ask, Which God are you talking about? What shall I tell them? Neither was God known in the palace of Pharaoh. When Moses told Pharaoh to release the Jews, Pharaoh's answer was profoundly clear. "Uh, Who is Jehovah? I know nothing of this so-called God. You see, at that point in Jewish history, God's connection to Moses and the Hebrew slaves is a bit mysterious. God had made a specific covenant with Abraham, and that arrangement was extended to Abraham's son Isaac. Later, it was expanded to include Isaac's son Jacob and his family, and then God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Israel had 12 sons. And the promise made to great-grandpa Abraham flowed to the people who became known as the 12 tribes of Israel, from the 12 sons of Jacob, Israel. They landed in Egypt and settled into a fantastic arrangement under the care of Joseph, Jacob's favorite son. Joseph had arrived in Egypt under horrible personal circumstances. Joseph's story in a thumbnail version was that he had 10 older brothers. Joseph was his father's favorite son. His brothers were jealous of the favor and benefits shown to Joseph. And Joseph did not help himself by telling the family that he had dreams that someday they would all bow down to him. His brothers threw Joseph into a pit and talked about killing him. Joseph begged his brothers to end the bad joke. He may have initially thought it was just a prank. But this was not just another big brother story of a little brother getting a cosmic wedgie. They actually faked his death and sold Joseph as a slave to some passing traders, And that was how Joseph ended up in Egypt. By the way, Joseph was not a whiner. He was a winner. Be like Joe. It worked out pretty great for him. Joseph rose to power quite unexpectedly. His was the classic rags to riches story. It was a contorted, painful, crooked, unfair journey to greatness. Through the unparalleled success of Joseph's leadership, the nation was saved from starvation and Pharaoh became famously wealthy. It was an amazing reversal of fortune story that unfolded in Joseph's life, but all good things came to an end. When the favor curried by Joseph ended, the Jews were soon enslaved by a later Pharaoh. After 430 years, Joseph was just a bag of bones. Well, actually he was mummified like his father Jacob. But the Hebrews had become Egypt's perpetual slave class. God heard the cries of His people in bondage. Cue the matzah for Passover. You see, the fulcrum of Christianity is the resurrection. But what about Judaism? The fulcrum of Judaism is the Exodus at Passover. It was through the Exodus that the nation of Israel came into being. God transitioned from having a relationship with the family of Israel, Jacob, to a relationship with the entire nation of Israel. This work examines the path Moses took to greatness. It was not a straight path to glory. Moses went from being a condemned baby to Egyptian royalty, to murderer, to exiled criminal, to shepherd, to plague-meister, to wagon-master, to navigator of the Red Sea without a boat or bathing suit, to recipient of the Ten Commandments, to man a man to the famous author of five best-selling books to be buried without a gravestone to his eternal glory. His resume was impressive, but his career path was fitful and spasmodic. By the time Moses married and became a shepherd, he had lowered his career expectations. Moses quickly outgrew his temporary left-wing fixation of identifying with the Jewish slave class. He transcended a desire to help the underprivileged and had actually joined the ranks of the underprivileged. During his brief failed midlife redeemer phase, Moses had acted impetuously and taken matters into his own hands by killing an Egyptian taskmaster. His motive was sincere, but he had no plan and he had no God. When the Jews responded negatively, the younger, thin-skinned version of Moses escaped to anonymity. I mean, his failed attempt to play the part of a deliverer caused his right-wing ruling family to cut ties. Moses discarded the call of God, and he also tried to forget his previous privileged, entitled elitist lifestyle among Egypt's most fashionable upper crust social class. He probably was horrified to see himself as a man with a fascinating past, but a bleak future. How many of us fail at our call of God when we act impetuously? How many of us regret taking God's matters into our own hands? If we depend on our natural strengths, to accomplish something that requires spiritual giftings. Failure is inevitable. Spiritual endeavors require instructions from God. Do you ever get tired of doing right things the wrong way? How many of us get worn out doing God's work in our own way? Each of these questions point us to one conclusion. Without God, we're in trouble. The only path we should pursue is to humble ourselves and yield to God. Moses was done with the spiritual stuff, but God was not done with Moses.